thank you, Patty. You faked me out going over to the piano and then coming up here to sing without the piano. Appreciate that. It was beautiful. Well, good morning. Um, haven't seen you since uh, new, no, since Christmas Eve, so I hope everybody had a wonderful Christmas and that you got all the gifts that you wanted and um, you didn't get coal in your stocking, hopefully. Um, Kevin asked about New Year's resolutions. I did not make any specific New Year's resolutions. I do believe God, you know, through prayers, kind of uh, calling me to make a few changes and tweak some habits in my life. But I do think uh, for Lent that I'm going to give up preaching. So I just thought, um, thought I would let you guys know, since Lent is now, just kidding. But I do hope that you had a, a great Christmas and a, and a happy new year. And um, I got some terrible feedback up here, guys. Is, can you hear it too? Okay. That's a little better. Well, this is our Communion Sunday, and what a, a great Sunday to celebrate Communion, and we spent our whole Sunday school hour talking about the depths of Communion and why we do it and what it means and how we do it. So I'm excited to celebrate the Lord's Supper with you this morning, and we changed the sermon titles or content up on Communion Sundays, and I do a different ser- a series for that just for something to different, different to do to break it up. And we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes, and specifically chapters 3 and 4. And this morning is a part 2 of a sermon that I started um, the previous Communion Sunday, actually last year. And in these verses that we're going to read very shortly, the Solomon, King Solomon, the author of this book, is talking about very important topics of justice or injustice and oppression. And he lived 3,000 years ago, approximately. And these are topics that were very important to people back then. These topics have always been important to people. And I'm sure that you've noticed, it's hard to escape in our culture, uh, we cannot escape the ideas of what injustices are taking place and what oppression looks like. These are very, very important topics. But in our day and age, I'm sure you've noticed that there is uh, actually some tension when, to even talk about oppression and justice because there's been a shift in uh, our cultural understanding of what it really looks like to be subject to injustice or what it really means or looks like to be oppressed. It's hard to escape the shift that's taken place. I would say it's an unfortunate shift in our understanding of what justice and oppression are. And I would say that it is not exactly in line with, with what Scripture teaches. doesn't make it any less important. This is something that is heavy on God's heart. You, you would be surprised when you look at Scripture how often He talks about injustice and oppression of people. It is very dear to His heart. And He calls His people to act Uh, to do what they can, to do what's in our power to correct injustices. That's becoming a little difficult, I think, because of the shift in our understanding of what it means um, to be oppressed. So the the new shift and the the understanding of oppression uh, that we're being, um, I guess, fed 
is coming from originally from the academics and we call it critical theory. So let me just throw some things out here to see if any of these ring a bell to you because it's all tied to the cultural shift and the cultural tension even um, that is existing because of critical theory. So if you've uh, ever heard words such as wokeness, uh, the whole LGBTQ debates, uh, the words of whiteness, Black Lives Matter, when you see an athlete take a knee at a, um, you know, at a game, uh, when you see bathroom doors in public buildings say gender neutral, these are all signs of the struggle and the shifts that are taking place regarding our understanding of what it means to be a people that are suffering injustice and oppression. As I said, it's kind of filtered down from academia into our public policy and into our cultural culture. And it's this idea that there is systemic oppression. I'm telling you things that you probably have already read, but it's a systemic oppression from a people group that is in a position of power. And there are a lot of assumptions in this. Again, it's a theory. And basically, it's people looking at society, critical theory. They look at society, and they critique it. And they say, here's what's wrong with society. There are power structures in place because there are certain groups of people or colors of people that are in positions of power. The assumption is that they are oppressing other peoples that become minorities, whether it's by color or by gender and so forth. Oppression has taken place simply because of these power structures that are in place. And so that's the shift that's taking place and public policy is being pushed our way. Uh, we're being forced to and, and challenged in our world view, really by believers. We are being tested in our um, charity and our love and our forgiveness and our relationships with people in this. But it, this shift in understanding justice, is, it's rattling our nation. But I really wouldn't be giving it as much attention if it wasn't also rattling our church. Uh, this whole idea, this worldview, these, these ideas have come into the church, and it has also caused division in the church. And that greatly saddens my heart. And it just is, it's a frustration, and it's a tension, and I believe that it is not for our good it's not creating a healthy atmosphere. Now, before I go any farther into that, I want to read our passage this morning so we can hear God's word through the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to be looking at chapters 3, 16, verses 16 to 7, then I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. For one, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done and under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living, than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under 
the Son. So the Bible talks about justice and injustice. God cares. He cares about the weak. He cares about the poor. He cares about the widows. You can't read Scripture and escape this mindset and this, uh, this love towards those that truly are suffering injustice and oppression. And He truly does call His people, the church, the people of God, to act when we see things that do not line up with God's view, God's teaching of how society should operate, how individuals should be treated. I think Scripture is very clear about that. But in order to act against things or in order to promote certain things, we need to understand what we're promoting and we need to understand what we're protesting or acting against. And so what has happened in this shift is that it's, it's not as, injustices are not as plain and simple as they used to be as far as how we define them. You know, scripture defines uh, in, an injustice as a concrete act of cruelty. It's something that's visible. It's something that's done that can be judged as wrong. So there's times where we should be able to say, based on God's word, that action is wrong. Or based on God's word, that action is right. And we want to promote these kind of things. But when we get away from the concrete cruelty and oppression and actions, and it's more into what people feel or just uh, the expression of people's ideas, then it becomes much harder to act and to make any solid ground or progress in this area of oppression and injustice. So we want to make sure that we're striving for the right things. How do we do that? Well, as believers, we make sure we're striving to try to build the right kind of communities and society by understanding God's Word, learning God's Word, reading God's Word. That becomes our standard becomes our standard for everything that we do in life. So we're directed by that. And that's what enables us to see when we're on track and when we're off track. When we remove that, it becomes somewhat of a free-for-all or it becomes somewhat of whoever has uh, the most uh, persuasive power to win people over to the group. But it's understood in Scripture that the idea of justice, doing what's good and what's right, comes from God's revelation. So that's what we rally around as believers. You know, it's, it's a game changer in, a, in that sense to have a standard that everybody can look to and that all of society can conform to because we agree that what God has said is true and right. And we also, in line with that, would agree as we read God's Word, as we understand God's Word, that God's laws are what liberate us. Liberate us. God's Word, when we conform to that, when we treat one another as God would have us to, that's what brings freedom. That's what brings unity. That's what brings goodness into our families and our societies. But when you bring wrong assumptions into what justice is, wrong assumptions into what the world is supposed to look like, who even gets to say that, by the way? Who gets to stand anywhere and say, here's what our world is supposed to look like? I would, I would argue that God gets to say that. And God gets to say that because He created it. And He gets to say it because He created us. And He gets to tell us how we were designed and what we were 
designed for. But when you apply the wrong ideas or divisive ideas, uh, they, they wind up with wrong solutions, I think, that can actually take us backwards instead of forward in love and charity and building unity in our churches and in our society. There's, this, there's assumptions that, are, that just fly around. So, for instance, the assumption today in our culture, and again, I'm not telling you anything new. It's all over the news. It's what we read. The assumption is that if you are in a minority, you are oppressed, period, because you're a minority. And so you have people that try to get minorities that try to get jobs. They get turned down for a job, and the automatic assumption in our new understanding, cultural understanding, is that that was oppression. You didn't get that job. Uh, there's, there's, like, off the table is the possibility that, well, maybe they didn't have the credentials. Uh, maybe they had a bad day. Maybe they had a bad interview. Maybe they just weren't uh, right for that kind of job. It's, the assumption is, no, that's systemic oppression and injustice. It just is what it is, and it's there. And that is the world that we live in, and that's what we're trying to correct. Well, that's a hard thing to correct because it's not really based on facts. It's based on an assumption. So that's our modern challenge, right? This is our culture, the culture we live in. It's the, it's the modern challenge that we face as believers. And I want to make us aware of these things because uh, they are working their way into the church. I have read some terribly sad stories about divisiveness in churches because of the different ideas. People are very passionate about this. Now, we need to be passionate about justice. I'm very glad that at least people are aware and want to do something about injustices and oppression. So my approach to this is to try to say as, as little as possible about it from a political standpoint, but rather just more loosely take popular sayings, things that are just plastered in our culture that we've heard, and just address them from a biblical light. And not just to point out error or call out error, but also to give us that standard, the conformity of God's word, something that we can say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right to me, but I can do this because our... People do need help. We all need help. And God does call us to do that. So we're going to look at a few of these sayings. The first one that we looked at last week, and I'm not going to, reha- not going to take the re- uh, time to rehash it, but people of color in the U.S. are oppressed. I've already judged that. That's just an assumption in our culture. So here's the one we'll look at this morning. I think we'll look at... Th- Two or three more, depending on how the time goes this morning. Uh, Here's something that is also thrown out there. It is a popular saying. Justice is part of the gospel. I have heard that countless times. Justice is part of the gospel. It sounds compelling. It sounds wonderful. It's easy to get behind that statement. But when you really think about it, it's not exactly true. And what happens is when we take, we, we, when we take some of the things uh, that are true and need to take place and we attach it to another thing which is true, which is the gospel, then justice becomes the gospel. They become equal things. Justice is not the gospel. 
Justice is a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. But justice in itself is not the gospel. But if you, if you believe that, then what happens is you think that uh, proclaiming the gospel or the content of the gospel is the same as trying to promote justice. And it is not. So is the gospel uh, giving... Is the gospel um, hiring a minority for a job? Is the gospel um, giving money or charity to or helping out the poor? Is the gospel having good international friends? Those are all wonderful good things, but is that the gospel? Or is the gospel the good news about Jesus Christ and what Christ has done. Not what we're doing or what not we ought to do. What is the gospel? Is not the gospel that Christ has met God's requirements of justice against people who have failed to do justice? To me, that's the gospel. And the gospel is not doing a list of commands we need to do this and this and this. That's justice. We have commands. God gives us commands and we're required to conform to those commands. But we do not because we are sinners. And the gospel is that God meets or covers those sins, all of those failures through the blood of Jesus Christ and therefore we can be in a right relationship with God. So Christ covers the commands and we can be forgiven for breaking these commands. That's the good news of the gospel. It's not a list of things to do. It's that we have been forgiven through faith and by grace that we failed to do the required list of things to do. So the gospel doesn't put us in bondage to these commandments. They're just, it's just not the same thing. And it's, I think it's dangerous and misleading to confuse them. They're wonderful things, but they need to be kept in their rightful place so that we can rally behind them in the right way. Here's, here's another one out there. And that is, uh, you hear this a lot, um, straight white males, listen. you need to listen. You need to listen. Now, the assumption behind that is that white people aren't listening. White people aren't listening to the critical theory argument or the arguments of wokeness or the new understanding or cultural shift of justice. And what it requires for you to be listening is for you to agree. That's the standard of whether you're listening or not. Because if you don't agree and if you can't see the way this group of people see, then you're not even listening to it. Now, that's a faulty way of understanding. Now, Scripture says we are to be uh, quick to listen and slow to speak. But that means if we're going to be quick to le listen, somebody's got to be doing the talking, right? And so the, the idea is here that we can't really even have a dialogue because... The conclusions are already made. You're not listening if you don't completely agree with this agenda or these policies and so forth. And it becomes this circular argument. That's how I know you're listening. So there's no room for bringing debate to the table. There's no room uh, for bringing facts to the table. And, and listening 
to each other respectfully and weighing out, does this line up with reality? If we carry this policy out or we carry this idea out, if we impose this on society, what will be the results? Because there are consequences to ideas that we have. So, for instance, uh, one of the things that I recently read in the news, perhaps you did, is this idea of, um, of equality and justice for those that have gender identity struggles. Uh, we want to try to create an atmosphere of respect and dignity for individuals. So, but how do you... How do you promote that? How do you impose that? How do you create that? Well, in this particular instance, it was a school trip. And um, both sexes were invited to go on the school's trip. And it was an overnighter. And so the teachers had to assign bedrooms or rooms for the students. And in this case, a young girl uh, got assigned to share a room with a boy who identified as a girl. You know, and if you go along with that, you know, you're a father and you find out that you did what? You shared a bed or a room with who? And these are just young children. And that's a policy that is trying to be, it's an idea that's trying to be fulfilled in the society that we live in. And that's one of the reasons there's this clash. Because there's a lot of people that aren't ready for that kind of cultural shift or do not agree with that kind of cultural shift shift. I recently watched a movie um, that I think was very intriguing and very relevant also to our cultural times, and it wasn't really about necessarily about justice or oppression, although uh, wokeness came into it and that came into it, but it was more about um, our current fears of some kind of cyber attack. And those are real. You read about that all the time. What would happen if if our utilities was hacked or were hacked or our banking system was hacked and all these digital devices that we have, what happens in real life? And so that's kind of what we're talking about these days, right? Well, this movie was about that. It was called Leave the World Behind. I'm not recommending it that you watch it. I'm just saying I watched it, okay? So there were some big actors in it, and I thought, this has got to be good. I didn't, ha I didn't have any idea what it was about. But it was about basically end, kind of end times things where this country came under cyber attack and what happens when uh, things are, are reliant upon you know, Wi-Fi, satellite, so forth, and this whole system breaks down. That's what this movie was about. There was, there was a, a, a section in this movie that I almost couldn't believe um, what I was hearing because it just seems to flow so naturally the way the tone of this came out. And I later found out that um, uh, the Obamas actually were co-producers or executive producers with this movie, so they were helping with the ideas of, of what the world would look like how things might go down. But I, uh, there was a very touching scene between, it was a, a, a black man and his daughter. Um, he was a very talented, capable person in, in a position of, of power. Uh, but the world was kind of falling apart. And he and his daughter were having this very, very special moment as they thought about what that might look like. And they were already sure they lost you know, the, the, his wife and her mother because when you're um, 
your instruments go out and you're flying a plane. She happened to be on a plane at this time. Uh, it doesn't go well for a plane you can't, when you lose your instruments. And so planes were hitting the ground. I mean, it was just a terrible, chaotic scent. But they had this little moment, a uh, very touching moment, and she is talking to her dad. And she says, I'm asking you to remember that if the world falls apart, trust should not be doled out easily to anyone, especially white people. Now, if you that that was that was in this movie. Now that is a very racist statement because it doesn't say anything about the character of people. There are certain kind of derelicts you don't want to be put in power. But how does that help with our battle of justice and unity when people, because of the color of their skin, are not to be trusted with positions of power? You see how easily that is shifted in there, and it's something that we get, we're so used to hearing in our culture that we just find ourselves agreeing with things. That is exact, this is a, was a great example of the very thing that we're trying to eliminate, and that's racism. That's by judging people just by the color of their skin, and it can work in any direction. So I couldn't, I was very shocked to, to hear that. Here's another one. There can be no reconciliation without justice. Now what happens is, or no restitution, there can be no reconciliation without the justice of restitution. Now you've heard, I'm sure, about uh, the desire for certain people to be uh, paid monetarily for the suffering that has taken place in the past. Our culture and our politics, our leaders are struggling with how to apply critical theory ideas and thoughts. So if that's true, we can't move forward is the idea. We can't get over this. We can't move forward of the uh, sins of the past without restitution. Then true reconciliation can take place and then we can be unified. Is that a biblical thought? I mean, it's, even if, if they try to work this out in our politics, is this a biblical thought? Let me read some scripture out of Ezekiel 18, verses 14 through 20. Now suppose this man's father, now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountain, so he's going to list the sins that the father did, not eat upon the mountain, lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, com pledge, commits no robbery, but gives bread to the hungry, so he doesn't do the injustice and the oppression, rather he, he promotes justice. He gives bread to the hungry, he covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules, walks in my statues. He shall not die for his father's iniquity, he shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced ex extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right, and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul whose sin shall die, the son shall not suffer 
for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Deuteronomy 24.16 Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall their children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So the idea, uh, biblically, is that, yes, sin is real, and it could even be in our family, in our size community, uh, but just because you are the prodigy um, of a person that sinned before you does not mean that you bear the responsibility for their sins, which is the whole idea of this kind of restitution. Uh, So um, the scriptures would say that, that that you are not guilty for the sins of your ancestors. And so this idea is trying to be applied here, and I think that Scripture is clear about that, that we're all responsible for our own lives. It doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. Sin is messy. Evil is messy. Sometimes we do suffer the, price, the, the cost of our parents' sins or even our grandparents' sins in a variety of ways. But the idea is that restitution cannot be made in that sense or in that way. And if you think about it, when would, like, who gets to decide even when is enough enough? When is it covered? Where do we draw the line? Like, there's this wedge, there's something between us that's keeping us from being reconciled that is kind of generic, and there's no real, like, will it actually cleanse people's hearts and, cons- and consciences? Restitution? And what if only some people feel better about it? It's just not a livable, workable policy. Also, when we read Scripture, where does the body of Christ receive reconciliation? We are reconciled to each other through Christ. Christ overcomes race. He overcomes gender because of the power of the cross and because of His obedient life, because of His mercy and His grace. We're we're not staying rightly related because we're, we're paying each other off. We are rightly related because of what Christ has accomplished in us. So we are not to put whatever hindrance or barrier between ourselves that's man-made or might seem like a good idea to us. We want to marvel and revel in what Christ has done. It's through His power and His Spirit that we are already rightly related, doctrinally and spiritually, and are becoming rightly related physically and materially through the process of sanctification. So the bottom line is, I think all of these, um, these are examples of, of popular sayings, and I've had to lay some of the side because we don't have time for them, but they're very more. Uh, but they, it, it's just sad to me that when you think about this and how passionate people are about beliefs and political beliefs, that literally there are today, sadly, churches that have more that are more united based on their political beliefs than their doctrinal beliefs. They get more upset what happens in the realm of politics than what happens in the realm of doctrine and truth. That's an accident waiting to happen. Our unity comes from Christ. He has created it. We rally around the standard word of God. It's special revelation given to us. And we just gotta, we gotta just roll in it and and get it down into us and push it and struggle to understand it and work it out. We're not going to do it perfectly. But this is what, it's a tremendous gift that God has given us. 
His Word. And we want to get our ideas and understand how the world works and society works from that. We want to be well informed in that sex in that sense so bringing this back where do we go from here well let's go back to god's voice in verse 3 17 he's ecclesiastes he says i said in my heart god will judge the righteous and the wicked solomon looks and he sees it's true unfortunately in our broken sinful world you look in places where there's supposed to be justice say the courts are justice system and there is not. There is some injustice. There's justice, but there's also injustice. Places where it's supposed to be righteous, like a church, you find wickedness. And that's just the truth that we live with until the Lord comes back. And it's not right. But what does He say about it? What's the solution? He doesn't tell us a solution. He doesn't give us an answer to it. He just says, I just see it and it's there. It shouldn't be there. It's wrong for it to be there. It's terrible that's there. It's painful that's there. But he doesn't give us a solution. He just points us to God. He points us to God. God will judge. God sees it. God knows it. The things that we think aren't being addressed are being addressed. Every injustice will be addressed because God exists. And he knows. He cares. He hears every cry, every whimper of oppression and injustice. And then lastly, we look at God, the sovereign timekeeper, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So when we think about injustice and oppression, when we get impassioned and zealous, which we should, we want to also keep it in perspective. And that is that God's in charge ultimately, and that there are actual times for things. And I don't know about you, but I get frustrated. And I say, God, can't you see this? This is not right. This is harmful. This is terrible. Why don't you act? This is just ripe for your judgment to come upon right now. And I don't understand why God doesn't resolve things when I think he should. And when I have a good cause and a good argument. But he's God. And he has impeccable timing to bring forth his plan, we're all headed, Scripture says, to this wonderful society called heaven where we will be one with God, one with each other, and all of this will be a thing of the past because Christ has conquered it. But for right now, our trust is to be put into God. We do what we can do, but he has a timing. So you see, faith has to be a part of it. Faith has to is necessary for us to, to get over ourselves sometimes when we witness such heinous things that take place uh, in our society and even to our very bodies. So we get upset sometimes that God doesn't keep our schedule. God doesn't, you know, He'll judge this or, and, and not this. He lets these things go. And that's part of learning to grow. I can just say this. I'm glad that God did not judge the world for its sins in 1963 because then I wouldn't have been born and I wouldn't know all of you wonderful people. I'm glad He didn't come down with the gauntlet of justice or the hammer of justice in the year 1983 because I wasn't saved until 1984. So the world begged for justice. God's justice, and it didn't come in His timing. 
Now, I happen to be grateful for that particular lack of immediate justice for things that deserved judgment. God says in Ezekiel 33.11 that He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Maybe that's why we don't see judgment when we think we should see judgment. That might just be one of the reasons. He's compassionate. He's long-suffering. He can bear it perhaps even longer and more lovingly than we can, though He cares more deeply than we do. God has a plan. So we want to be a people of faith. We want to be a people of trust. Not be hurried, not be panicky, not be all anxious as if we have to do it all. God is in this with us. We need an eternal uh, perspective on these things. Ecclesiastes tells us. Uh, We can't see the beginning from the end. We have to have an aerial view or a divine view. God's view in order to make sense of all of it. We can't from here, from down here. It reminds me a little bit of the testimonies for Thanksgiving and that is when Madison said, you know, I'm down in the, in the canyon but I'm not at the top where I can see the beauty of all of it. I'm so limited. And Janet said that when you just look at the sunflower and you just look at the core of the darkness and the blackness, you, you can't see its beauty, but when you step back, then you can see the colors and the texture of it. Only God can see it like that. He has the aerial view. We can't. We just have to trust Him. So let me close this crazy passage and message with what do we do with this? The injustice and the suffering that continues and that we have to be patient about. Well, we think about the incarnation. We think about the story that we rally around in Scripture. And it's a story, it's a narrative that no other faith has, that no other people group has. And that is that not only do we have a God, but we have a God that came down among us. And He's a holy God and He's a just God, but what did He do? He didn't just come down among us, He suffered. He suffered injustice. He suffered oppression. He suffered beatings. He was falsely accused. He was mocked. He suffered the wrath of man's sin and the evil and the wickedness of their hearts. This holy God came down, was incarnated, and He suffered. I'll close with this illustration from Timothy Keller. I'll just entitle it, He Got on the Table. Years ago, there was a guy I knew who was an x-ray technician. I used to have to go to him because there was a period in my life in which I had to have a number of what they call the lower GI series. Now, if you all know what it means to have x-rays in the bottom part of you, you realize you have to have a barium enema and then you have to hold it and you have to lie very still on the table while they take a picture, then they turn you. I had an x-ray technician friend who I never thought was terribly sensitive when he was doing these things to me. He would say, okay, here you go. Okay, here we, here we go. Now hold it, don't move. Not much sympathy. And then one time I went back to him. I had to have another GI series and he was so gentle and he was so nice. And I said, what happened to you? What, what happened to your old bedside manner? And you know what he said? I got sick and I was on the table. That's God. 
You know, God got on the table. He knows. He knows what this world's like. He knows the things we have to endure. Now, He was sinless, but He suffered the many sins of others. Jesus' death is the only truly unjust suffering ever in history because He's the only sinless soul. He deserved nothing, and yet He suffered for us. You know, there's two ways, I guess, to look at it. We can shake our fists at God and say, how can you let this happen? How can you let this happen to me? How can you let this terrible thing happen to the people that I love? This is wrong. What kind of God are you? We can do that. Or we can say, how can you let this happen? How can you let your son suffer the punishment that I deserve? What kind of God are you? And the attitude that we have in that sense will lead us, one will lead us, I think, to reconciliation with God. And the other will lead us to alienation from God. That's our story. And it's a different story that any other people group or religion has in humanity and it guides us, guides us in a way that we look at injustice, in the way that we look at oppression. So we build our lives as individuals. We build our lives as New Covenant Fellowship. We build them on the rock. God's given us the rock, the truth of His Word. It's sure, it's tested, it's proven, and it's personified and lived out in Christ. And it works, and it is working, and we are living it. And God has us on that trajectory of sanctification that will end in glorification. If society needs restructuring, and it does in many cases, then it's God's Word that is the pattern for us to follow. May God bless the preaching of His Word. And I look forward to worshiping the Lord and coming to the table with you this morning.